Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 7, Indios Barbaros. I'm Brandon Seal. The Lipan great captain, Picax Ande, crossed the Pecos River to meet with the Spanish Commandant General awaiting him on the other side. Commandant General Juan de Ugalde admired Picax Ande's, quote, face and bearing of a soldier, end quote, as he approached. The 50-year-old captain's name meant strong arm in his native language a reference to his legendary acts of valor on the battlefield during the previous decades of violence. Technically, a Lipian rather than Lipan, Picaxande's rise to prominence represented an alliance of 15 or so of the roughly 37 Apache tribes that were claimed to populate the Texas plains between San Antonio and Santa Fe. In many ways, Picaxande was the heir to a network of alliances that Captain Bigotes had begun structuring in the previous episode, through the classically Apache alliance-making toolkit of marriage, trade, horses, and now the peyote ceremony. By the time of his meeting with the Spanish Commandant General Juan de Ugaldi on this July 10, 1787, Captain Picax Ande was said to be, quote, the idol of all of the Apaches, and the one whom they all obey, and many accept him as their chief, end quote. In many ways, the nature of Lipan Apache leadership confounded European observers, Though in other ways, it was quite simple. In the words of a latter-day Lipan observer, quote, To be a chief, a warrior has to be able to draw and hold men. He has to lead those men and not drive them, end quote. Quote, a great chief is one who supplies the needs of his people, not one who robs them of what they have, end quote. There's occasional references to the elections of Lipan captains, but the historical record suggests a strong hereditary component to it. The idea, however, of Plains Indian politics being unstructured and freewheeling often gets oversold by European observers for whom any type of stateless society was mind-boggling. One of them, for example, would write of the Lipanes that, quote, all of them are free. They go from one rancheria to another whenever their chief does not have the strength to oppose, end quote. But that doesn't square with other better informed observers who claim, for example, that, quote, this is the nation most obedient to its chieftain, end quote and we've certainly seen evidence of an impressive coordination of action. That coordination of action had been seen most convincingly in the years following the promulgation of the Reglamento of 1772. The Spanish in that year had launched a, quote, continuous war, end quote, against the Apaches. Policy was an unmitigated disaster for the Spanish-North American frontier, resulting in the killing of 1,674 Spaniards the capture of 154, the sacking of 116 haciendas, and the loss of 68,256 head of livestock. In the minds of now desperate Spanish administrators, such a naked display of coordinated Apache power sanctioned all manner of duplicity in dealing with them going forward. They began working to form alliances with all of the Lipanes' enemies, from the Catoan-speaking Wichitas with whom they had signed a peace in 1771, to the Comanches, with whom they had begun to coordinate campaigns against the Lipanes. But the new Spanish policy went beyond alliance building. It became outright underhanded. The Spanish began to actually sell firearms to the Lipanes, but only firearms that were either too long to be useful on horseback or that were fabricated with deliberately faulty parts 
so that they'd fail after only mild use. In all attempts by the Lipanes going forward to offer peace, including, for example, a delegation of five of the most prominent Lipan captains in January of 1778, were rebuffed. Indeed, under the 1772 Reglamento, peace with the Apaches was legally forbidden. In 1779, a particularly unscrupulous governor took office in Coahuila, Juan de Ugaldi, the man who was now, in 1787, the commandant general of the interior provinces and meeting with Picaxande on the Pecos River. In 1779, Ugalde launched an ambitious but ill-conceived campaign to try to turn the Mescaleros and Lipanes against each other. He would spend much of the next four years in the saddle, ranging all over Coahuila and the Big Bend and up into the Edwards Plateau, chasing Lipanes and Mescaleros. In 1783, however, they got into his rear, and they violently sacked Coahuila, which Ugalde had left unguarded. Embarrassed, Ugalde was removed from his post as governor. Even though Ugalde had returned to favor with his appointment as Commandant General in 1787, as that conference on the Pecos River began, Captain Picaxande made it a point to remind Ugalde of this history. He framed it in hopeful terms, however, that hopefully things would go better for Ugalde in this new job, which was kind of like an attempt to give his opponent a reputation to live up to, as Dale Carnegie might have put it. And then, Picaxande deployed the Spaniards' own religious imagery against him. Quote, There are three great captains here today, God above, you, and I. The first is looking down upon us and listening to what we say so that we shall see who is lacking in truth. End quote. It wasn't hard to hear in Picaxande's invocation and accusation. Ugalde by now, had a well-deserved reputation, even amongst his fellow Spanish, as untrustworthy. He was particularly gifted at the art of bureaucratic obfuscation and justifying his own actions through invented acts of Apache treachery. But to be fair, by this point in the history of Spanish-Lipan relations, it wasn't just Ugalde. Double-dealing seemed to have become official Spanish policy. In 1779, four Lipan captains, including Captain Chiquito, son of Captain Chico from last episode, had come to San Antonio to try to negotiate an end to hostilities with a new Spanish governor. The governor agreed to an initial truce and allowed the Lipanes to settle nearby while he considered terms. Within days, a Comanche raiding party hit the Lipan camp. And then a few days later, a Tonkawa force did the same. Suspecting that the governor had tipped off the Comanches and Tonkawas, the Lipanes went to San Antonio to complain and were surprised to find a party of Caduan-speaking Tejas in town, also conspiring with the governor. When the Lipanes confronted the governor, the governor allowed them to understand that the alliance was the Tejas' idea, not his. Don't worry, the Texas governor told the Lipan emissaries, I'd rather be allies with you again. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to travel to Chihuahua to meet with my boss the commandant of the interior provinces, and convince him that you're sincere about peace, okay? It was a classic exercise in Spanish bureaucracy, disguising an impossible condition as an innocuous request. The entire region between San Antonio and Chihuahua was filled with the Lipanes' enemies. But surprisingly, the Lipan captains accepted the Spanish governor's condition. He wasn't ready for this. So he came up with another impossible condition for them. 
Okay, but you have to choose a single Capitan Grande, a baton captain, he called him, recalling the old Spanish practice of acknowledging with a gold or silver-tipped cane the authority of one particular captain. You have to choose one to speak for your entire nation. We can't be negotiating with a bunch of different captains. And once again, the Lipanes accepted. Actually, they went one step further. They told the governor that he could pick which captain he wanted to speak for the entire Lipan nation, and they would accept it. I find it interesting that at no time during these years or during these negotiations did the Spanish stop paying rent to the Lipanes, which also makes the governor's demands all the more curious, like a tenant demanding fealty from a landlord. If his demands seemed particularly unreasonable, however, we should remember that, violence notwithstanding, it was highly advantageous for frontier governors to maintain a state of war with the neighboring Apache nations, at least in terms of their budgets. Because each year, the Spanish delivered thousands of pesos worth of cigars, candles, salt, corn, cattle, dried meat, sugar, and copper pots to the Lipanes. There was some question, however, as to how much of those reported gifts actually made it into Lipan hands. Furthermore, having large numbers of men under arms created the opportunity for large and non-transparent military supply contracts, controlled patronage style by the governor himself. The Spanish governor of Texas in 1779 certainly seems to have gone out of his way to avoid agreeing to peace terms with the Lipanes. Every time they accepted his demands, he came up with a new one. In this case, he refused to pick the Lipanes baton captain for them and told them that they must pick someone and then also have him ratified by all Lipanes everywhere. Not just by the five of you, and not just by the Lipanes that are camped outside San Antonio, by all Lipanes. The Lipan captains left, but surprised the governor once again when they returned a few months later with the news that the entire Lipan Apache nation had consented to follow whichever captain the governor might select. It was an exercise in absurdity, but the Lipanes were playing along well. And this was probably because the Lipanes weren't placing all their hopes on a Spanish peace. Indeed, the most intriguing peace negotiations of the period weren't going on in San Antonio. They were going on up on the Guadalupe River. Sometime in December of 1782, perhaps the greatest pan-Indian conference in Texas colonial history took place. Nearly 4,000 Tonkawa, Parancawa, Bidai, Caro, Texas, Mescalero, and Lipan and others met to attempt to lay the groundwork for a 1680-style New Mexican Pueblo revolt and for a new trans-Texas Indian identity. During the two-month trade fair and great council, 4,000 cattle were slaughtered to feed the enormous gathering. And half of the attendees were Lipan, and the fact that it occurred in their homeland shows the central role that they had in organizing it. Captain Chiquito's name is listed prominently amongst the organizers, but so too were two younger captains of the South Texas Lipanes, one named Pocarropa and the other named Flaco. We'll see plenty more from them later. Catalyzed by yet another epidemic that swept through native Texas in 1780, native Texas was reshuffling itself. The Tonkawas, for example, consolidated from four bands into one and were now actually being led by a Lipan Apache. But the Spanish governor caught wind of this council. The governor wrote his deputies and bosses that, quote, it behooves us to cultivate native Texans' old enmities, end quote. 
conspiring with some disaffected Tonkawas, he had their charismatic Lipan leader assassinated, a message to all those who would conspire against Spanish hegemony. And he doubled down now on his efforts to cement the long-elusive alliance with the Comanches, who, notably, had not been present at the Guadalupe River Conference. In October of 1785, the Texas governor finally signed a peace treaty with three of the most powerful captains of the eastern Comanches. Its main objective was clear. The treaty confirmed that going forward, the Comanches and Spanish, quote, would be the declared enemies of all the Apaches and Lipanes and attempt as much as previously to make war on the latter in such a way that they may be totally exterminated, end quote. The Lipanes registered their displeasure with this new alliance by targeting the three Comanche captains for assassination. Within a year, the Lipanes had killed one of the captains and would have killed a second if the Spanish didn't actually kill him first. Picaxande, it seems, may have killed the third in a battle in which he killed four Comanches personally with a lance, including a Comanche captain wearing a Spanish uniform gifted to him perhaps at that 1785 peace treaty. Anyway, this was the background of Captain Picaxande's meeting with Commandant General Juan de Ugalde in 1787 on the Pecos River. It was a supreme act of faith on the part of Picaxande to even show up to the conference given Ugalde's history. The Apaches were alliance makers, however, and their mythology taught them of the necessity of treating with even the most distasteful people. The meeting transpired with little more than pro forma declarations of friendship and only the vaguest promises of peace. Ugalde recognized Picaxande as Capitan Grande of the Apache Nation, and Picaxande accepted Ugalde as his godfather of sorts, now symbolically adding de Ugalde to the end of his name, Picaxande de Ugalde. Yet each seemed to realize that they were setting each other up for a contest rather than a collaboration. The next year, in February of 1788, Juan de Ugalde sent a message to Captain Picaxande. He told him that he was about to go on the warpath against the Mescaleros. In order to make sure that Picaxande's people didn't get caught up in it, he needed the Lipan captain to relocate all 2,000 of his people down to Santa Rosa Coahuila, modern day Muskies. And one other thing. Ugalde requested the support of his godson, Picaxande, on this campaign against his mescalero cousins. In much the same way the Spanish governor had a decade prior in San Antonio, Ugalde was imposing an impossible loyalty test on Picaxande. The two were engaged now in a high-stakes game of politics and diplomacy, and Picaxande matched Ugalde move for move. He accepted Ugalde's invitation, and within a month, he had his entire community marched down into Santa Rosa. When he arrived, Ugalde fired his canyons in salute, and the Lipan captain's warriors performed a mock battle as they entered the town, each side flexing a little bit for the benefit of the other. But instead of accepting or rejecting Ugalde's demands to join him against the Mescaleros, Picaxande used his audience with the Spanish general to articulate his Mescalero allies' grievances. He focused on one in particular, the ongoing sale of Spanish firearms and other goods to the Comanches. The young South Texas Lipan captain, Pocarropa, honed in more starkly on the injustice of the Lipanes' repeated and rejected peace overtures to the Spanish versus the open Spanish embrace of the perfidious Comanches. December 1787 had seen the Comanches attack Lipan camps three times. These attacks were still raw for the Apaches in attendance. 
Then, at the end, Picac Sande came over the top. Forget the Mescalero campaign, he said to Ugalde. Let's march out together against the Comanches. Picac Sande was essentially mirroring the Spanish general's strategy, putting him to his own form of a loyalty test. Ugalde only promised to consider it. And with that, the second peace conference of the great Capitanes Grandes ended. But after this conference, a young Spanish lieutenant accompanied Picaxande back to his camp, which the Lipanes had made near their old sacred site of the old Remolino mission. And this wasn't just any lieutenant. His name was José Menchaca, and he was a great-grandson of the old San Antonio Presidio commander, José de Urrutia, and grandson of Turribio de Urrutia, both of whom had been the Lipanes' greatest opponents in their time, but eventually came to be both, quote, feared and loved by the Lipanes, end quote. Menchaca's father, also a commander of the San Antonio Presidio during the Spanish-Lipan alliance years, was an outright, quote-unquote, bosom friend of the Lipanes. Young Lieutenant Menchaca, like many San Antonians, in fact, had thus grown up with Lipan friends and probably spoke some of their language. And almost as soon as he rode into Picaxande's camp, he ran into a childhood Lipan friend, who served as his tour guide for the next few remarkable days. Almost as soon as he arrived, Lieutenant Menchaca got to witness Captain Picaxande call his people into assembly and download them on his latest conference with Commandant General Ugalde. Then he got to see Picaxande's wife, La Capitana Grande, stand and give an even longer speech, holding the audience spellbound. Then that night, in order to consider the issue properly and deliberate on it with due solemnity, the entire camp participated in an elaborate all-night peyote ceremony, an interesting piece of archival evidence for the medicine's power as an alliance-making tool. All of this, however, was just prelude for an even more elaborate ceremony set for the next day. Just before midday, Lieutenant Menchaca watched as everyone stripped down to the waist and gathered outside Picaxande's tent. Then, at almost exactly noon, Changing Woman came face to face with Killer of Enemies, which is to say, the moon began to block out the sun. A bell rang from the captain's tent, and for the next hour, the people entered four at a time, offered gifts to the great captain, and then exited with blue paint on their faces. Menchaca was stunned by the elaborateness of it all. I'm stunned by how a largely nomadic people were able to predict with scientific precision the time and place of a solar eclipse. And by the way, there's at least one other reference in the historical record to the Lipan Apaches correctly predicting an eclipse, a lunar eclipse in this instance, but still. I guess if ever there was a people whose cosmology situated them well to understand the orbits of celestial bodies, it was the migratory Lipanes, whose own migrations imitated the orbits of the moon throughout the Texas plains. But this level of knowledge really suggests both an incredibly ancient and an incredibly far-reaching cultural tradition. It takes hundreds of years for solar eclipses to reoccur. Coincidentally, actually, El Remolino in San Rodrigo Canyon will once again be brought to darkness this year on April 8, 2024. Commandant General Juan de Ugalde was unimpressed when Lieutenant Menchaca reported back to him. He had only two questions for the lieutenant. Did you see any Spanish brands on the Lipanes horse herd? Lieutenant Menchaca tried to recall. He supposed he had. It wouldn't have been surprising in a land where horses were currency. So he said yes. The commandant continued. 
Did you see any mescaleros in their camp? Well, of course he had. Picaxande's own wife was mescalero, he said. But Commandant General Ugalde now had his pretext. Picaxande was consorting with known horse thieves and with the enemy mescaleros. Ugalde sent Picaxande a message, an accusation really, calling out the presence of the mescalero captains in his camp and ordering them all to come to Santa Rosa. Under a banner of truce, of course, but they must report immediately. Picaxande and his captains complied. But on March 24, 1789, as soon as they rode into Santa Rosa, Ugalde threw the mescalero captains into chains and declared war on their people. No sooner had the sun emerged from behind the moon than Juan de Ugalde had once again set the Spanish Apache frontier on fire. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas in the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com. <laughs>